I invite you to join with me in a journey through Genesis chapter 24 today. Genesis chapter 24. If you've been with us for a while, you know we've been marching through the book of Genesis fairly systematically um, and actually rather quickly. I know it doesn't seem quick to you. Um, this is only the 27th message um, that I've developed in this. Um, Pastor Stephen has preached six, so we're at 30, what is that, uh, 33 um, in the book of Genesis so far, and we're in chapter 24, so we're moving relatively quickly um, from our perspective, from a sermonic perspective, um, in this very dense and rich book that is extremely crucial for our understanding of God's plan for mankind and God's progress of that plan throughout human history. Here in the beginning of all things, we've noted that the book of Genesis does have a major theme. It starts out with the glorious creation of Almighty God who has always been and ever will be. In the beginning, God. The author of Hebrews would tell us that, uh, that without faith it is impossible to please him, for we must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So those of us must come to God through the means of faith, have the foundational fact that we believe there is a God, and we know that God by name because he has revealed himself divinely in this inerrant, infallible, inspired word written over 1,800 years or 1,400 years or so, covering 1,800 years of human history uh, by 40 different authors, all put together by God's grace and providence so that we have his clear communication for all men for all time. So as we look at the book of Genesis and we see the book of beginnings, we know that the, the theme of the book has uh, some great highs. The great high of God's deliverance, right? As we walk through the book of Genesis, we see God is our deliverer over and over and over and over. And by the way, little plug for our 9 a.m. discipleship hour. Um, if you haven't yet come to one, you are missing out. Uh, I am working through the Pentateuch and um, be in Leviticus next week, and it was an awesome opportunity to hear about God's holiness and fellowship. Pastor Stephen is working through the minor prophets, so you get to see how God's plan fleshes out in a time of trouble and trial in Israel's history. Not much different from what we see today uh, in modern our modern era. Uh, so please do come to that 9 o'clock hour if you want to get some extra deep, rich, technical, but also inspiring teaching from the Word of God, 9 o'clock right here um, for, for a certain generation, the same bat time, the same bat place. Uh, for the rest of you who have no idea what that is, it's old Batman. Anyway, uh, over there in the white building and right here, those two locations, I said that to say that as we saw or we see the theme of Genesis as God delivers, what we're going to find is the Pentateuch picks up on that, and the, the theme of Exodus is God delivers or God's deliverance. And we're going to see in the theme, we see, we're seeing in the theme of Leviticus, God's deliverance brings his holiness, which warrants our fellowship. And then we're going to note something even more uh, intimate in the book of Numbers that will open up and reflect God's final chapter, the book of Deuteronomy in the Pentateuch. So all of that to say, we've seen the incredible high of God's deliverance, the book of Genesis thus far. But we've also noted the thematic truth that sin destroys. 
And sadly, as this euphoric high, as you read in Genesis chapter 1 and into chapter 2, uh, and you, you experience this interpersonal connection with the God uh, who created all things and spoke them into existence by the word of his power, that this God would form us intimately and specially and breathe into mankind or Adam the breath of life, that he would have an interpersonal relationship, a connection with his creation. But that connection is broken when sin enters into the world. And we note very clearly that sin brings death. And in Genesis chapter 3, we find out that death starts by immediate separation from God spiritually. And eventually, we read in Genesis chapter 4, for Adam and Eve, it terminated in separation physically as well. So death has both a spiritual and a physical aspect. And what we find then this, this sad, dark thread traced through human history from the fall to the present, the present, that is, sin, when it is finished, brings forth death, separation from God, spiritually and eventually bodily. But Genesis doesn't stop with that dark thread or that sin curse. It picks up with God's glorious redemption announced to Eve. I will crush the serpent's head, though his heel, the seed's heel will be bruised. That idea of the seed then is marched through in, in a beautiful narrative fashion. As we noted, there are 11 Toledoths or 10, two sections of five with a book end in the middle. Those are, these are the generations of the way the narrator divinely uh, spread out and separated the book of Genesis. We're in the latter half of Genesis, and we have found from Genesis 12 to 25 a story about the seed by which God would deliver his people from sin. So the big theme of Genesis, sin destroys, but God delivers. And when we see the life of the patriarch Abram, who is renamed Abraham, we will discover in our journey that this uh, exalted father, Abram, who marries princess Sarai, will become Abraham, father of many nations, with his princess Sarah. And as we march through this, we see that God, through his divine providence, has interwoven into the sad story of man's sin-sick nature, that we are sinners by birth and sinners by choice, that God has interwoven into this sad reality a beautiful crimson thread of relationship and restoration and redemption, that God himself would provide a covering, a final payment for sin, so that God would ultimately deliver but that payment would come through the seed of the woman. Very specifically, the seed that was given to her, and she applied that to a male descendant, her own son. Now, we know the story of Genesis is very clear. Her firstborn 
Cain is not the seed. In fact, he, uh, he meets sin, which is crouching at his door and ready to devour him. And his sin nature uh, is powerful and strong. And instead of yielding to God, he yields to sin and he murders his brother Abel. And so from the very beginning, we see the, the tenuous story of mankind's relationship to God that is now severed because of sin. But God delivers. God would give her Seth. And through Seth and his lineage, the seed would continue. God's promise of deliverance would flow from the human means of of relationship between Adam and Eve through Seth and Seth's holy heir, Enoch, who would walk with God and was not. And then Enoch, would, through his lineage, would deliver Noah, and Noah would deliver Abram, or Abraham, Terah and Abraham. And so here we have Lots of narrative space spent on the life and the ministry of Abram, who becomes Abraham, father of many nations. And so what we find then is the providence of promise. As we've looked at Abraham's life, starting in Genesis chapter 12, and now ending in Genesis chapter 5, we see God's sovereign plan to eradicate forever Man's real problem, sin. You see, sin destroys, but God delivers. And and what we find in the walk of our patriarch, the seed that, that God would provide, the walk of our patriarch, a broken man, a sinful man, pulled out of a sinful place, the walk of the patriarch was one of faith. He believed God, and it was credited to his account as righteousness. That righteousness would be imputed or given to him. It is alien to him. It is foreign to him. Uh, Why why do we know that truth not only applies to Abraham, but to us? Not just from what the Bible's already told us in Genesis, but from what we know as New Testament believers having the whole story. The Bible says there are none righteous, not even one. That all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the eyes of God. That uh, the psalmist would say that man drinks iniquity like water. In fact, all of us are altogether sinners. We're altogether evil. And so the righteousness that we need cannot come from within ourselves. It needs to be applied to us from the outside. And that's what we've seen in the life of Abram turned Abraham. He was a broken man, a failed man, came out of Ur, came out of the the godless society of moon worshipers. We've excavated Mesopotamia and Ur, and we know that this was a society of human sacrifice, a society that worshipped the moon god or the moon goddess, a society of paganism and immorality. And God calls him out of this to a land that he would promise his descendants, but along the way he has some epic failures. And we've not shied away from preaching on those failures, have we? But what we see ultimately in chapter 22 is an immense mountaintop success. Our man Abram, who becomes Abraham, father of many nations, through his princess Sarah, has laughter. Isaac, the seed of promise. Laughter is his name. 
Laughter is the promised one that will bring the blessing of God, not just to Abraham in fulfillment of God's ultimate promise, but to all the ethnos, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth will indeed be blessed through Isaac, through laughter. Once again, we see sin destroys and devours. It's crouching at the door, waiting to pounce on anyone who'll capitulate to it. But God always delivers. And the story of Genesis 22 is a mountaintop, literally, a mountaintop experience as Abraham and Isaac, laughter, the son of promise, the seed that is the crimson thread by which God will crush the serpent's head, this seed that is the, going to be a type of the deliverer to come, this seed is offered literally as a sacrifice on the top of this mountain. And as Abram raises his knife to do the sacrificial deed, to shed the blood of his one and only son, the God Almighty, through his angel, calls out his name twice and says, I provided a sacrifice. Do no harm to your one and only son. He passed the test. Faith on the mountain of Moriah showcased Abram's desire willfully, fully to serve God, believing that God was even able to raise Isaac up from the dead. Which, by the way, this, just pause for a second. I know we're on this emotional high. I know I'm let, leading you up to this build-up right now because we're going to get to this build-up and it's going to be great. But just pause for a second. How does Abraham take God's promise? Symbolically, figuratively, right? No. He believes God provides a son, Isaac, and that God will raise his son, Isaac, from the dead so that Isaac will physically father children and be the seed of promise. This should give us a clear way we should look at Scripture. God's communication is meant to be clear. And in human language that we understand this is, there's a literal fulfillment of Scripture that, that should be our first, our first go-to, right? Isaac on Mount Moriah becomes a picture of or a symbol of the future Isaac who won't, God won't stay his hand. But that one and only seed will be delivered up for us all. He who knew no sin would become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, that Jesus would be the second Adam. He would live a sinless life, fulfilling all the righteous requirements of the law. He would submit himself as the perfect lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And he would, on the cross, shed his precious blood, being pierced hand and foot, bleeding head and side. And he would cry out finally and once for all, it is finished. Paid in full. Isaac was just a symbol of Jesus, Yeshua, the one righteous deliverer who would save his people from their sin. You see, sin always destroys, but God always delivers. Amen. Now, you say, what does this have to do with Genesis chapter 24? That's a great question. I'm glad you're theologically thinking this morning. You see, God in his providence sets forth his plan, and he expects his people to, by faith, receive his plan even when we don't see the outcome. 
Abraham proved in chapter 22 that he was that kind of man. But then we got to chapter 23. As I mentioned last week, chapter 23 is a chapter full of human sorrow. Abraham's princess is gone. The wife of his youth, he spent 60 plus, 68, almost 70 years married to her. She's delivered the seed, the promised child. Uh, her, she's lived 37 years of his life. And Abraham and Isaac are lamenting the loss of the matriarch of the family. And last week, we didn't shy away from the emotions of what it means to understand God's promise in light of God's providence. To trust in the God of providence who has made precious promises even when our life circumstances are hard. Even when we're struggling with sorrow, grief, real suffering. And so we saw last time uh, our, 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 the, the struggle of our patriarch, Abraham. We noted uh, that, that faith then had uh, an actuation. There was, a, there was an, a, a, a means by which faith then had to be activated. In the time of sorrow, in chapter 23, we saw there was a point at which, and we noted last time, Abraham had to stand up. He was grieving. It was, it was a low time in his life. But God's promises never fail. And though sin destroys, sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. And here he's staring death in the face. His precious princess is gone. He has to trust in the God of providence. And his faith must then be actu activated or actuated, right? And that's what we learned last time. As we, as we looked at the, the text or the context last time, we noted that the axiom that we learned was genuine faith withholds nothing and thus sacrifices everything. That was the mountaintop of chapter 23. That becomes fully tested in, in chapter 23 when he's confronted with the loss of his princess. His response proved to us that genuine faith stands on God's providence, even when death brings temporal finality. Last week, I ended on a wonderful modern hymn, and I gave you the, the, we read it, we read the whole text. We concluded with a wonderful modern, modern hymn that speaks to the, the conquering of death. And the application was this, when you and I experience the certainty of hurt and sorrow and pain related to death, separation from the body, we understand, especially when it's our loved ones or our friends or our family members, especially when it's tragic or uh, a sudden or we watch their demise, their slow demise due to a, a, an illness or a suffering, uh, it is a really hard pill to swallow. But God, in his mercy, gives us application from the real story of a real person that we call our father of faith who really suffered in the same way. He knew what it was like to lose his precious princess. And what we found was that genuine faith stands on God's providence, even when death brings temporal finality. So I told you last time the sermon's title was The Providence of Promise, Part 1. So guess what? Today's message is called The Providence of Promise, Part 2. Good job. 
Surprise. Last time we saw faith activated or faith actuated, faith realized. Today we're going to see faith's routine. As we see the providence of promise engaging in chapter 24, we're going to see Abraham's response to the suffering. We saw that he stood in the midst of this suffering and he claimed God's promise and thus he began a routine of daily trust in God. Now, we call Abraham the father of faith and we, we rightly look back at Abraham knowing Abraham was not under the law in, in much the same sense as Noah found what in God's eyes? So in much the same way, Noah was under grace So Abraham was under grace. Though Abraham, the father of many nations, would be the forerunner, the first Jew, as it were, the first son of Israel, the father of the Israelites. And the Israelites would be under Mosaic, L-A-W, what's it called? Law. We are under grace. So you see how oftentimes as Christians, we like to skip over the whole law generation and just talk about the grace generation, right? Because, you know, The law is our schoolmaster, is our tutor to point us to Christ. We have Christ now, so let's skip, you know, 50 per 60% of the Old Testament, and let's just talk about the grace parts. So let's go talk about Abraham's life, and then let's talk about the New Testament. But we need to remember that what Abraham establishes here in the Old Testament is a routine of faith that you and I must live day to day. And what, by God's grace, lets uh, God lets us see in this text. And this is why I made it a two-part message and didn't disconnect chapter 23 from chapter 24. What we see in the providence of promise is when we claim God's promise and by faith we activate our faith, uh, walking with God daily, we are going to see what the routine of faith looks like on a day-to-day basis. Okay? So this is a very appropriate message for 2023. Yes, I'm going to inform you about the historicity of Abraham and Isaac and all this wonderful stuff, and I'll even give you some cool technical stuff that you can take home with and say, wow, I'm, I now know some cool stuff about Genesis chapter 24. But beyond that, let us not forget that faith has a routine. It had a routine in Abraham's life, and it has a routine in our life when we, by faith, trust God believe his promises, and then act on that faith daily in a regular routine to follow him. So we're going to ask the question then, as students of the word of God, you're asking already, what pattern does the text reveal to highlight our need to trust in our God of providence who rewards us through his routine provision of life? What a studious question. Thank you for asking that this morning. What pattern do we see in the text that, that highlights our need to trust in our God of providence who rewards us through his routine provision of life. Remember, that later on we read in the New Testament that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so as we look at the context, we're going to find the father of faith, Abraham, who diligently sought the Lord, having a routine of faith that when we see the pattern of it and we implement that pattern in our lives, we can also claim the reward that God has for us today. And so, as I mentioned already, um, the axiom that we learned, let me move on. So today what we're going to do is we are going to see through the routine of life, 
that a faith grounded on our God of providence will always be rewarded. A faith grounded on our God of providence will always be rewarded. Instead of searching for signs in the heavens, we must trust in our God who provides daily. We will learn today that genuine faith stands on God's providence awaiting God's reward. That is the kernel of truth that typifies and uh, classifies the entirety of chapter 24. Genuine faith stands on God's providence awaiting God's reward. And lest I lose you, because in just a moment, I am literally going to read 67 verses of the Old Testament. And you're like, really? You're going to do that? One time I sat, I, I sat through a message on Psalm 119. The preacher literally read every verse in Psalm 119. It took him 23 minutes to read all of Psalm before he preached it. It was like an hour and 40-minute message. Don't worry, this one's not that long compared. So as we look at this reality, I don't want you to forget this. And here's the reason why. Abraham, our father of faith, is someone we look up to in the New Testament era as a, as a, a man under the means of grace. Grace typified his life. God spoke to him. He followed God. He had a journey of belief in God, and now he has a practice of providential faith, trusting in God's promises. And yet, we're about to dive into the context of his passing the baton to the next generation, and some of you are going to be like, I'm going to lose you for 15 minutes. So I want to remind us, in our modern era, God operates in much the same way he did during the life of Abraham. In the sense that we have God's written word, which is reflective of God's spoken word. We must trust in the written word of God that we have today because the written word of God directs our providential daily lives for him. So when our world tells us we need to look for a sign, how do I know whether I should take this job? Well, I need, to, I need, I need a sign, God. And, and our eyes are open. We're, we're on the way to work and we're looking at all the billboards. Is God going to give me a sign on the billboard today? And, some, you know, and sometimes we interpret something as some kind of sign or, or some circumstantial thing happens and we say, oh, that was it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle anybody. I've been guilty of that today. I, I recall even as a 20-year-old um, praying fervently, uh, Lord, I'm about to go out on a date with this beautiful young lady green-eyed, curly-haired, black-haired lady that I just think is amazing. Um, please don't let me screw it up because <laughs> I think she might be the one. And I remember thinking, you know, could you just like, you know, just audibly speak to me at this meal or something to say, she is the one for you, you know? <laughs> like that would make life a lot easier, God. <laughs> and I remember thinking that, right? I want a sign. I need some kind of like confirmation. And God gave me confirmation, but it wasn't that audible voice. It was the confirmation of a daily faith walk with him as he opened the right doors, as I walked through in obedience, as I continued to uh, go one step at a time and grow one step at a time, I saw God's providential leading. The story of Abraham and Isaac here in chapter 24 is one of God's daily routine providence. All right? So with that being said, let's go ahead and let's read it. All right? Let's read it. And then I'm going to break it down to three highlights 
Because remember, the text gives us a pattern of faith's routine. The text gives us a pattern of faith's routine so that we're going to see this morning genuine faith stands on God's providence awaiting God's reward. Genuine faith stands on God's providence awaiting God's reward. And we're going to see that pattern in the text. So let's read Genesis chapter 24 together. Probably should drink some water, but I'll just make you all thirsty while I read. And you're going to be thinking about being thirsty. And all of you are going to drink from your water bottles while I'm reading. I know that happens all the time. It's really actually comical. If you're ever up here, you got to kind of see. You can always tell that you need a drink of water when everybody else is drinking water in front of you. See, it's already begun. Thank you. Appreciate that, Tristan. All right, here we go. Genesis chapter 24. Here we go. Number one, first one. Now, Abraham was old and well advanced in age. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now, let me pause here. I'm going to do a little commentary along the way on purpose so I don't get wrapped up in it too much in the sermon part. Abraham's old. He's well advanced in years. There's a pattern here in the text. He's blessed. That's a highlight of his patriarchal promise way back in Genesis chapter 12. I'll bless you. So he's blessed. This aged advancement and blessing is a clear uh, showcase of God's blessing in his life. God has blessed him. The prom- we, the reader, are supposed to see the narrator share, show, sharing with us God is fulfilling his promise in Abraham's life. We do not know this servant's name. We're going to find throughout the entire narrative the servant is never named. I will not do the injustice of telling you dogmatically who the servant is. I do think he's probably Eliezer of Damascus because he was the one who was supposed to be the inheritor And God says, nope, it won't be Eliezer. It'll be one born in your own house. It'll be one born to your own wife. It'll be one born in your old age to your wife of of her old age. So Eliezer's name is descriptly missing from the text on purpose. But he is mentioned as the oldest servant of his house. Okay, probably is this guy. But he's unnamed on purpose because the point of the text is that he is a conduit. He is a liaison for his master. And you will find that as we look at the text, his master is clearly Abraham. But at the end of the story, his master is clearly Isaac. So the narration is to tell us that as the conduit, as the liaison, Eliezer is acting on behalf as a steward of his master. And the master is transferred to the son of the master. In much the same way, we're going to find that Eliezer, or this unnamed servant, I'm going to just call him the unnamed servant, that the unnamed servant here in the text then becomes a man who follows the same pattern of faith in light of his master as a representative of his master. He follows a pattern of faith that you and I must follow today as well. When we submit to our master, our Lord, and we obey and follow our Lord, we receive the blessing of faith, and we watch the providence of God work in the day-to-day routine of life. And that's what we're going to see in the life of this servant. One other comment. 
A um, lot of commentators like to talk about the thigh thing, okay? Um, why did he put his hand under his thigh? Um, and the, here's the simple and great answer. You ready? It's really profound. I don't know. Nobody really knows, I'll be honest with you. There's a lot of supposition. It's, well, you know, you know, the thigh is close to the area, the important area, and, you know, the seed, the promise, and, you know, he's supposed to have a kid. And so maybe, okay, the sign of circumcision, maybe. It could just have been a ritual that they did. It could have just been a cultural ritual. Let's just go with that, okay? But the point was, it was a very intimate promise, okay? This is an intimate thing to place your hand under someone's thigh. And he was essentially binding him in an intimate commitment to say, you will provide for my son a wife so that out of my son can come the blessing of children and that God can bless my son like he's blessed me, all right? So I didn't want you to be thinking about that the whole time, so I wanted to get it out of the way, all right? Um, so as we go here, as you see the pattern, he says, I don't want him to take a wife of the Canaanites. God has already said the Canaanites, do you remember what happened in chapter 10 and 11 of Genesis? The curse of Canaan through Ham, right? Are you following? Are you remembering this whole curse thing? God cursed the Canaanites because, they're, because Ham sinned in an egregious way, and so the Canaanites are the type of anti-God in the Old Testament. They are against God. They are idol worshipers. They hate God, and they, they don't want anything to do with him. So Abraham's seed cannot come from the Canaanites. Who is the promised line? Terah. Uh, these are the generations of Toledoth. These are the generations of, in chapter 11, Terah. Terah had a son, Nahor. He had a son, Abraham or Abram. So where's he going to go? He's going to go right back to the promised line. He's going to look for a child, for a wife, under the lineage of Nahor in the promised line. No Canaanites. By the way, who did Ishmael take a wife from? Egypt a type of the world, okay? So here, this is, this is really important. This is, we all are like, well, wait a minute. Why is he going back to Ur of the Chaldeans? Why is he, why is he going back to Mesopotamia and the, the moon worshipers? Because he knows that intrinsically, God has blessed the seed of Terah, his father. And therefore, he is going to send the seed that way. And I, we learned last time through the intricacies of the lineage that God wound tightly the threefold cord of the family and brought it back together in one singular thread for the messianic promise to be fulfilled. All right, now I'm going to get behind the pulpit and I am going to drink some water. So as we look, we're going to look at the text and I won't interrupt it as much because the rest of the text really has a story that we need to follow. I am going to interrupt after verse 15, okay? Here we go. Now, verse 5. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? Very astute question. But Abraham says to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. 
the Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me saying to your descendants, I give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were, were in his hands. And he arose, and he went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. This is a prayer. This is his prayer to God. Behold, I, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of, of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she says, drink, and I will, I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac, and by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. All right, let me pause there, and let me... Let's walk through this passage now. As I read it, I'm going to give you the outline points. That way we will progress through the message, and you'll know when it's going to end when we get to the end. All right? So the first thing we're going to see about the providence of promise in faith's routine here is that this truth highlights God's providence tested. Abraham and his, the old, his oldest servant, this unnamed servant, are testing God's providence. God promised the blessing, and so they're going to test that blessing. God promised that this lineage would come through Terah, who himself was through Noah, or Shem, who himself was through Noah, who himself was through Enoch, who himself was through Seth, who himself was through Adam. Are you following? This heritage would be tested. God's providence of promise, the seed of blessing, is being tested here. I'm going to go back to my home. I'm going to send my son back to my home. But here, a couple of things here as we move in to this providence tested. How do I know that this is faith's routine? Well, first and foremost, I hope you, if you're marking your Bibles, did you notice the, the word, the English word take shows up a lot? A whole lot. All right? This is a pattern that is being uh, laid out for us. He comments on God speaking or saying, and then he mentions, you do not take. There's a do and a don't. Do go and take from Nahor's line. Do not take my son back there. So there's a providence tested here. Is he going to realize God's blessing or not? The servant asks a really important question. Hey, uh, Abram, um, what if they need proof? What, you know, what if uh, the woman's not willing to follow me? She needs to see physically your son and know that he is the inheritor of the blessing. And he reiterates, you do not take my son. And the point of this is, I think, to highlight the reality that God sent Abraham away. Now, we're also going to find later in the story, a couple chapters later, somebody does go back. And it almost costs him, in fact, I would say, the influence of that Mesopotamian family in Ur 
essentially, if, if we're talking from a human perspective, completely ruins the unity of his family. His family becomes extremely disunified and really destroyed from a human perspective. He goes back to Mesopotamia. We're talking about Jacob, right? He marries, thinking he's going to marry Rachel, but he ends up marrying Leah, and then he marries Rachel. Now he's got two wives, and now they're feuding, and they both give him their handmaidens, their concubines. So now he has four wives. Fourteen years later, he returns, and his life is a mess. Why? All because he wasn't following the faith's routine. He wasn't trusting in the providence of God's promise. He went back. He didn't wait on God. And I know I'm jumping ahead to a future message, but uh, you know what? Sometimes we don't wait on God, do we? We take faith into action, and we decide that we know best, and we're going to step into God's blessing by doing it our way. Now, we've already learned in Genesis, doing things our way never works. In fact, it leads to sin, and sin destroys but God delivers. And we're going to see a whole lot of grace in the life of Jacob. We're going to see a, a beautiful crimson thread through Leah's redemption arc because uh, she is not the preferred wife. But here we want to see the positive example. So God's providence tested. How is God's providence tested? Abraham refuses to send his son back to the world, but he allows God to provide what he knows God needs. Now, let me just pause and say before we move on to the second point, before I keep reading this morning, before I dive into um, the depth of his prayer, because this is part of God's providence, not just in Abraham's, Abraham's life, but in this unnamed servant's life. How many times have we overstepped God in understanding his providence? Can I just move forward a little bit? You remember in Matthew's gospel, uh, we, we like to call it the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. And it ends in chapter 7 with that uh, great statement, uh, you know, ask, seek, knock, what father gives a servant, his son, you know, a serpent instead of bread, or stone instead of a bread, depending on the translation. You know, you get me. But in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is saying to his disciples regarding his kingdom and working for his cause, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Don't worry about tomorrow. King James says, sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. Modernization of that is, each day has enough evil of its own. Stop worrying about tomorrow. There'll be evil tomorrow. Don't worry about it. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. In the context of Matthew 6, what are the, all these things? He talks about food, clothing, and shelter. He says, see the lilies of the field? They don't toil, they don't labor. But they, I tell you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as beautifully as these lilies of the field. They were, they were, they were covered. They had garments, right? They were taken care of. Don't worry about what you're going to wear, what you're going to put on. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, where you're gonna, what you're going to drink. Don't worry about where you're going to live. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Abraham was the quintessential follower of God. He left all that he had, and he lived in a tent in the wilderness for 175, well, for about 100 and, 
more than that, uh, 140 something years. And yet the promise, the providence of promise, oftentimes we step out of that when we say, you know what, God, I know better. I'm going to make this decision. I don't think this is coming to me fast enough. So what is the pattern here? Providence is tested with a pattern. And we see it here um, in in this statement. I want to show the absence of something here that's very profound. Look at verse 10. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, for all of his master's goods were in his hand. Okay? So he, he takes 10 camels and he loads them with his master's goods. Okay? Uh, by the way, I, I sincerely doubt that he was by himself. I'm, I'm assuming that this caravan of 10 camels loaded with incredible amounts of goods also involved other men uh, and servants along the way. So this is a big, giant entourage of people, camels, stuff, okay? And then what he says is, and he rose and he went to Mesopotamia. He went to the city of Nahor, all right? We know, archaeologists tell us, and we know based on this biblical name, that this was a city that was between the two rivers. It was between a a branch of the Euphrates. It is where the Euphrates splits as a well-watered plain. It was a beautiful place, a beautiful city, uh, a well-watered place, a place of wealth, really the cradle of, of civilization at that time. But notice that it just says he went there, and what's the next thing? And he made his camels kneel down outside the city. Okay, none of you have thought of this probably yet, but you know how long that gap between verse 10 and 11 was? A minimum of seven months. A minimum of seven months. Over a thousand miles on foot and camelback, humping along, with his master's goods, which all of them were within his power and right to divvy out. Seven months. This was faith's requirement. This was faith's test. He is testing the providence of God in the daily, routine, mundane activities of life. He is going back to his master's homeland, and it's going to take him as long as it takes him to get there. And all along the way, he's had a lot of time to think about what he's going to do. And what erupts from his heart in verses 11 and following show us faith's pattern. So look with me again at verse 12. He, he, he parks out, he literally parks outside the city. He waits till evening By the way, evening time was when all the ladies, the ladies' domestic responsibilities were really important to life back then, okay? They were the ones who would provide water for the household. They went at evening time or at dusk on purpose. It was the cool part of the day. They would bring whatever household servants they needed to bring, and they would bring the pitchers that they needed to bring, and they would bring them to the local well. Local wells were not like our wells. You know, we have an eight-inch tubular well with, you know, a pump that's cylindrical that's sunk at 500 feet just over here. Back there in in that area, this would have been a gouged-out hole in the ground that would have had very narrow steps down to water, and they would have had to walk all the way down, fill up their pitchers, and walk all the way up. By the way, the the, the ancient pitcher size, the, the average size of a water pitcher was about three gallons, okay? Plus the weight of it in clay. So I don't know how much 
the clay itself, the clay pot itself weighed maybe a couple of pounds, but three gallons times eight, okay, that's, that's 24 pounds plus three or four. Talk about a 25, 30 pound pitcher of water, all right? So he travels seven months. He gets to where he's going. He pauses at dusk, knowing that he's going to see a bunch of ladies of the village, of the city, that are coming out to do their domestic duty. And here's what he prays. Oh, covenant God of Israel, oh, Yahweh, God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water. By the way, what did Abraham do after his grief? He stood up before the Lord. What does his, his representative do? He stands and he obeys the Lord. Even in the midst of this crazy circumstance, seven-month journey, has no idea who these people are, no way of identifying. They didn't have Facebook, okay? No Instagram, no way of knowing who Nahor's kids looked like, right? I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink, she says, drink, and I will give to your camels a drink. Let her be the one you've appointed for your servant Isaac, and by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now, let me say this. Some of you said, wait a second, Pastor, this sounds a little counterintuitive to what you just said. You just teased me for looking for signs. Isn't he looking for a sign? And the answer is, he's not looking for any sign that's outside of normal activity. He's going to the place where all the women always go. He's going to ask for something that is always asked for by visitors and guests, the hospitality of water for yourself and for your animals. It's just a normal, routine request. Now, it doesn't seem very routine to us because we don't live in this society, but this is a routine request. He's not looking for a sign in the heaven. Hey, Lord, can you line up Jupiter inside the belt of Orion so that at this time when there's a blood moon that it will happen and then, you know, this will, it'll transverse the skies here. And by this calculation, I will know that you're... He just says, I'm standing at the normal place at the normal time of water, and I'm going to ask for normal hospitality. Would you please providentially provide by your grace and power the woman that is supposed to marry my master? Do you see? He's just trusting God. He's testing God's providence, not in a unique way. He's not asking for some, you know, outrageous lightning strike, billboard flashing, you know, song and a dance. He's just saying, this is the routine, mundane, day-to-day -day walk of life, and I believe that you, God, are able, because you love me and you love my master, to provide exactly what you promised you would. And I'm going to sit here and I'm going to watch you work your magic. Now, let me just pause there for a second. I think he, you know, personally, maybe he got a little zealous about the camel thing. How many camels did she have? Ten. Do you know the average camel can drink about 25 gallons of water? Um, how many gallons does her pot hold? About three. This poor woman makes 70 to 80 trips over the course of about two hours to give this guy a drink and all 10 of his camels. And the text doesn't say that she had a bunch of other people helping her. It just says she did it. So um, there's a lot of faith here on her part, too. There's a lot of trust 
that God is the God of providence in her mind too. And this happens without him sharing any blessings. He's just sitting back for two hours watching this woman sweat it out, carrying 30 pounds of water up and down the stairs over and over and over and over and over until his thirsty camels are done gobbling up the water. That's a lot. I don't know about you, but I mean, ladies, that would be impressive, right? I mean, talk about not skipping leg day. <laughs> I mean, that's for real. So you look at the text and you find this prayer on his side is very normal. This is just the routine. But he finds somebody that God has already providentially provided that is willing to do the extraordinary, that is willing to provide in a special way. Guess what he has done? He has found the match to his extraordinary master, Abraham and Isaac. The woman who would have extraordinary service and extraordinary faith and a heart to do over and above what was asked of her. Why? Notice the very next verse, verse 15. And it happened before he finished speaking that behold, Rebecca, who, by the way, we readers, we get to know before he does, Rebecca, who was born of Bethuel, son of Milcah, wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Verse 16, now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin, no man who had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little warm water from your pitcher. I'm going to pause there for a second, and I'm going to move to the second point. We know that this truth is highlighted through God's providence recognized. We're seeing in verses 16 to 20 that God's providence is not just tested, but it's recognized. You're going to find this unnamed servant worships God over and over and over. He leads Rebecca and Laban and the entire household in the worship of God when he recognizes God's providence. What is the pattern of the mundane faith walk that God demands of each and every one of us? He demands from us uh, that genuine faith stands on the providence of God waiting for God's reward. When we test God's faith, or when, excuse me, when we test God's providence, his ability to provide for us based on the promises he's already laid out for us, we do that in the mundane, daily, routine days for, for, of life, not asking for signs or symbols, but simply obeying God, walking with God, loving God, and knowing that when God brings his blessing into my life, God gets the praise and worship. And so what do we find in the text? Let's keep reading. So she said, drink, my Lord. Then she quickly let down her pitcher to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, she said, not him, he didn't ask. She said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. This is an extraordinary woman. She sees 10 camels and she's like, yep, I know they're thirsty, but I'm going to keep going. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water and drew for his camels. I mean, this woman isn't just like lounging around and lollygagging. She runs. She's serious. She has an open and willing heart to serve. And she's going to be rewarded here in a moment. And the man wondering at her, wondering at her, this is the idea of awe, awesome, 
the awesome wonder. He's wondering at her. He remains silent so as to know whether the Lord, Yahweh, had made his journey prosperous or not. Verse 22, so it was when the camels had finished drinking. Again, there's one of those profound silences. The silence of a seven-month journey. The silence of two and a half hours of 80 sweaty trips up and down with 30 pounds of water. <laughs> over and over again. So when the camels had finished drinking, that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel, two bracelets for her wrists weighing 10 shekels of gold. By the way, um, a shekel was about a, a modern pound um, ounce-wise. It's approximately 16 ounces. So um, if you wanted to figure out what an ounce of gold is, and I didn't even look it up today. I didn't even bother looking it up. So you can figure that out, the exchange rate. So a half a shekel would be approximately eight ounces of gold. Um, so you can figure out how much wealth we're talking about here in just the little stuff that's mentioned, okay? He takes a nose ring weighing a half a shekel, and I don't think this was probably a piercing. He didn't like, like puncture her skin. This, she either, either she already had a piercing or uh, it was a clip-on kind of a thing. Um, the nose in, in the ancient Middle East was considered the uh, focal point of the face. And by the way, um, notice what he's, how he describes her or how she's described in verse 16. She was very beautiful to behold. Um, do you know what her name means? Captivating. It means captivating. And it has the idea of captivating beauty. So the the master or the servant to father of many nations and laughter is going to find laughter someone who's captivating. That's free, by the way. God did that as the divine narrator. God found laughter captivating. So when captivating comes and meets laughter, they laugh together. It's beautiful irony in the text. Anyway, keep, we'll keep going. Some of you will laugh at that tomorrow. All right. Uh, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, and he said, whose daughter are you? Tell me, please. Is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, Michael's son, or Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. And the man bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord. This is the first mention of clear worship. Why? Because in the providence of God, when they tested the providence of God, in the day-to-day -day faith walk, God proved himself to be faithful, and so he recognizes God's providential provision and God's faithfulness in worship. Hey, friend, when's the last time you recognized God's providence in your life? When's the last time you bowed down and said, thank you, Lord Jesus, for my family? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the salvation that you provided to me, for the salvation that you've provided to my teenagers, my children, for the salvation you will provide to my children that haven't yet come to faith in you. Thank you, Lord, for the provision of this house over my head and the food, the warm food that fills my stomach and the provision of friends that encourage me as iron sharpens iron to uh, walk with the Lord and love the Lord. Thank you, Father, for this church that you've put me in that is a, a beacon in our community to showcase the gospel that is led by God-called and chosen and equipped shepherds that love us and love you. Thank you, Lord, for, and you can just keep going and going, can't you? Shouldn't you? Shouldn't we? Because when we recognize God's providence, that recognition turns to a worship that only God alone deserves. 
So we look at the text. He bows down, he worships, verse 27. He said, Blessed be the Lord God, my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on my way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Let me pause and say I've heard a lot of bad sermons on I being in the way, the Lord led me. Um, I've actually heard it as I was in the way, but God did it anyway. Please don't preach a message like that. No, God led him because he was submissive in the test of God's providence. He submitted to God in the day-to-day mundane acts of life. He stood on God's providence awaiting God's reward. He prays a prayer at the beginning. He worships God in fulfillment. Now the young woman is going to run and tell her family. The rest of the narrative then is a, is a recounting of the story from both the young woman's perspective and the servant's perspective. Her brother Laban jumps in. Let me just make a couple of quick comments about that because our time is almost gone. Uh, Laban is her brother, and it seems kind of weird. Bethuel is mentioned and Milcah is mentioned. Bethuel is Abraham's brother. Bethuel is the patriarch of the family. Why isn't Bethuel here making a deal with this unnamed servant? on his daughter's behalf? And the answer is because two things. Number one, the divine narrator is highlighting the next step of the seed. The divine narrator is introducing to you the man whom Isaac's son is going to deal with, Laban. And secondarily, it was very common culture then and is even still common culture now in certain areas of the world for the firstborn son to negotiate on behalf of the father because he is the heir even in negotiating with um, someone regarding his sister, all right? Now, you all know who have siblings that it's kind of important that you like your siblings' spouses. And if you don't like your siblings' spouses, you know how hard that can be, (laughs) right? I mean, let's be honest. And so Laban is uh, making sure that he likes his siblings' spouse. And it works out pretty well for him in the end. I also want to highlight one other thing before I read the story, because again, our time is quickly departing. What you're going to find here is Laban, what what we're going to find later in Laban's life, this, this greed and this avarice that we see that's fully developed later on in Laban's life that makes him break his, his contract with Jacob and keeps Jacob a constricted uh, servant for 14 years instead of just seven we're going to find the seeds of this greed in Laban's heart now. Um, when you see in the text, and it's clearer in the Hebrew, the way it's laid out, and the interaction of Laban and the activity around what he sees as this gold and all of this household provision, that all of this wealth that is being poured on his family, he really, really wants it, and he wants more of it. And the way the text describes, you see Laban's response is also spurned a little bit by greed. Look, let's keep going. All right, so now Rebekah had a brother. His name was Laban. Laban ran out to meet the man at the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring, verse 30, bracelets on his sister's wrists. And when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah, saying, thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels as well. And he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So here he is. He sees all the wealth. He stands next to the camels. So, you know, he's probably, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever, you ever done this. You have a friend who's got a really nice car. You know, you kind of walking by, he's telling you, well, I like the inside of that car. Oh, it's cool wheels. He's, he's uh, checking the camels out, right? 
Oh, wow, that's a shiny, uh, shiny gold up, gold plate there. Hmm, let's, let's check out number, Campbell number two over here. Oh, my goodness, he's got a whole flatware set made out of pure gold. Oh, wow. Uh, third, Campbell number three. Whoa, this is, this is Ethiopian silk. What in the world? This guy's loaded, and he's going from camel to camel to camel, kind of checking out the wealth. That's the way the narrator is explaining the story. All right? And he keeps on going. And so... Uh, so he says to Abraham, so then the men came out of the house, and verse 32, he unloaded the camels, provided the straw, feed for the camels, water to wash his feet, feed of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat till I've told about my errand. So this is the Abraham's servant. He doesn't want to eat food until he explains his mission. He's already believed that God, he's tested God's providence. He's seen God's providence recognized and answered. He's worshiped God, but he now wants to explain to the family the urgency of his faithfulness to his master because he believes God is going to reward him just like he's rewarding his master. So he says, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, and he has given him flocks, herds, silver, gold, male and female servants, camels, and donkeys. And to that, Laban says, Amen. Uh, and Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whom, whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my family and take a wife for my son. Verse 39, And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way, and you shall take a wife for my son from my family and from my father's house. You will be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family, for if they do, will not give her to you, then you will be released from my oath. And this day I came to the well and I said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if you, will not, if you will now prosper the way in which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water. It shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water, and I say to her, please give me a little water of your pitcher to drink. And she says to me, drink, and I'll draw your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. But... Before I had finished speaking, in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down to the well and drew water, and I said to her, please let me drink. She made haste, let her pitcher down from the shoulder, and said, drink, and I'll give your camels a drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels a drink also. Then I asked her, and she said, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milka bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrist, and I bowed my head, and I worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son." Now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Hey, I'm going to look for some other family member if you're not the one. Right? So he is providence has been tested. Now, will providence be recognized in the rest of the family? So what we have, then Laban and Bethuel answered, and said, the thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son, son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard their words that he worshiped the Lord. Again, he worships, bowing himself to the earth. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold, clothing, and gave them to Rebecca. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And he and the men who were with them ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning and said, send me away to my father. But her brother and her mother said, let this young woman stay with us a few days, at least 10 after that she may go. You just pause there and say, that is a cultural thing. It was, uh, 10 days of hospitality, sort of, uh, that was normal. So he wasn't asking for something out of the norm. 
um, in their culture. However, what does the servant say? And he says to them, do not hinder me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away so that I may go to my master. So they said, we will call the young woman and ask her personally. By the way, I love the beauty of the interaction, the dynamic between male and female. Even in this culture where females were denigrated, in this culture, in this household, Rebecca gets a choice. She has free will. We've, we've seen the respect here. And this is to showcase the respect that is supposed to be in a God-honoring relationship. And Isaac and Rebecca have that. Um, we'll see that at the end of the story. Um, so Rebecca gets to choose. And he sa she said, I will go. Um, and in fact, this is, depending on how you want to translate this in the Hebrew, this could be an emphatic, I really want to go, right? This is like that quintessential couple when they finally start dating and the girl tells you the story. Her cheeks are breaking because she's smiling so much and she's giggling every moment of the story because she's so excited that they, she finally started dating the guy that she thinks is the one, right? That's kind of Rebecca's response, right? She's like, I really want to go. This is the guy. This is the guy I've been waiting for. This is the guy I've been praying for. God, in his providence, has provided for the promise. And he says, and so she says this, so they sent Rebekah away, their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you become the mother of thousands, of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Then Rebekah and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. All right. Final word. The final text, almost done, showcases that God's providence is rewarded, or God's providence rewards. This is meant to be God is the rewarder through his providence. So God's providence rewards. All right. This is the final point here, and I'm almost done. Look at verse 61 and following, now verse 62. Now Isaac came from the way of Be'er Lahairoi. Hold on a second. What, what is Be'er Lahairoi? You remember the story? It goes all the way back to Hagar. Hagar gets mistreated. She gets kicked out of the home. She, she runs away with her precious son, and she thinks he's going to die in the wilderness. And the angel of the Lord meets them at Be'er Lahairoi. The God who hears, hears her cry. By the way, this is where now, this is, this is a little bit of narrate, narr narrative uh, superiority, where the narrator is saying, um, by the way, Be'er Lahairoi doesn't belong to Hagar and Ishmael. It actually belongs to Isaac and Abraham because Isaac and Abraham are the seed of the promise. So Isaac is dwelling in Be'er Lahairoi, where God sees, God hears, okay? So this is a narrative way of saying Ishmael is not the son of promise. Isaac is the son of promise. He's meeting in this special place where the angel of the Lord has already spoken to his servants of the past. This belongs to Abraham and Isaac. You see that? Okay, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Okay, just pause. This is not oming. Okay, he wasn't cross-legged, sitting on a rock, going om, om. Okay, that's not biblical meditation. Is actual prayer, contemplation, and repetition of God's promises. Isaac had now spent likely 14 to 18 months 
praying about God's provision of a wife. Here he is at the appointed time, looking at his, his, uh, his sundial on his, on his wrist, right? Saying, okay, this is about the time of year. I'm, I'm, and he's out there and he is, he is worshiping God in meditation, claiming God's promises. See, providence has been tested. Providence uh, is, is um, his faithful providence has been tested. Providence has been recognized. And now providence is about to be rewarded. And so he looks, he prays, he's meditating in the field. And he lifts his eyes at evening. He looks, and there the camels were coming. Um, there's parallelism. The servant gets there at evening. His wife gets there at evening. It's just narrative parallel, parallelism. Then Rebecca lifts her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted for, from her camel. Okay, this is that moment. The music is, you know, the violins are stirring. You know, she gets off and... She's do 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 do. Well, that's not really appropriate. Some whatever you know, loving. I don't even know how it works. Okay, but you know, this is this this is this sappy hallmark moment. He's throwing his cloak off. He's running toward his bride. She's throwing her veil on. Running. She is actually putting her veil on. That was a sign that she was betrothed. Okay, um, which will explain probably later why Jacob doesn't recognize his actual wife, because she was veiled, only it, as a veil of only the eyes were, were uncovered. And so they're running toward each other. Cue the music. Beautiful, romantic moment. Um, and she says, who, you know, says to this servant, who is the ma this man walking in the field to meet us? Here's the quintessential transfer. The servant says, it is my master. Remember, the story started. His master was Abraham. Who is his master now? His master is Isaac. Beautiful transfer. So she took a veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Okay, a couple of quick comments, and then we're done. This is clear narrative replacement. Rebekah replaces the matriarch of the family. The matriarch was princess, Sarah, okay? Now, the matriarch of the family is captivating, beautifully captivating, Rebecca. Now, was Sarah captivating? She sure was. She was taken by two different kings to be part of her harem at 90 years old, okay? She was probably, well, in the modern vernacular, she must have been a hottie, okay? Rebecca is captivating, that's her name. That's what it means. And yet the narration is clearly showcasing how she becomes the matriarch of the family. Now, this is the first relationship that is described with the language of love besides Adam. So Adam's, you know, his, he wakes up from his anesthetized sleep when God removes the rib and forms Eve. And he says, wow, man, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Eve because she is the mother of all living. He, he comes up with Hebrew poetry, so he's quoting poems to, to his wife. But the next mention of love in this relationship is here. Isaac loves Rebecca. And they, for the most part, there's not a lot of narrative spent on their relationship. It is a good relationship. It's a, not fraught without its difficulties, as we'll see next week, but it is a relationship of love. And so we find God's providence rewarded.
Not only does he get captivating beauty as his wife, laughter gets captivating beauty, and captivating beauty and laughter go together, and they rejoice in God's goodness and his providence. But he's also comforted in the sorrows of life. You know, I think as we close out um, this text today, we have seen through faith's routine that genuine faith stands on God's providence awaiting God's reward. We have been motivated to trust in our God of providence who rewards us through his routine provision of life. And as we answered the question, what pattern does the text reveal to highlight our need to trust in his routine or in our God of providence who rewards us through his routine of life? We noted first this truth is highlighted through God's providence tested and then through his providence recognized and finally through providence rewarding or reward. So genuine faith stands on God's providence awaiting God's reward. So as we conclude this morning, let me ask this. Do you know the God of providence who is bigger than all your failures and he's the Lord of all your successes? Are you willing to follow by faith God no matter what the outcome seems? Are you willing to trust God in the mundane, routine faith walk of life? Will he provide your food, clothing, and shelter? Will he give you wisdom for those relationship questions? Will he direct your steps for the right job and the right career path? And the answer is yes, emphatically yes. And as we noted from the story, before God's unnamed servant was done praying, Rebecca showed up, which means she'd already left the house in God's divine providence. He'd already took, taken care of his need, the need. And that is the way God hears us. God knows your need, friend. He knows every heart desire, every real need, every felt need, and he's already met that through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Bible tells us, and I conclude with this thought, that eye has not seen, neither has ear heard the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus told his disciples, I'm going away, but I will come again, but I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house are many mansions, many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. The author of Paul to the Corinthian believers tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that in a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trump and with a shout, we shall all be changed one day. And we will meet him like he is. No more sin curse, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. And God will remake this creation. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem where we will dwell. And God himself will wipe away all our tears. Amen. No more sickness, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more cancer, no more sin. Oh, friend, I don't know what it is that you're longing for in this life, even if it's just the routine mundane needs. But God knows, God cares, and God provides. Will you trust him? He's trustworthy. Let's pray.